Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 23 in the series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 29th of May. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, Gary, we're having a chat with Ian Ralph. He's the founder and managing director of Manifex, and it's a firm that actually invests in startups. So he's going to talk to us all about that. And then we're going to have a chat with uh, BT economist Chris Caton about his assessment of the budget. And very interesting that is too. That's right. So in the meantime, let's have a chat with Ian Ralph. Ian Ralph, Manifex invests in high-tech companies. Tell us about it. Okay. Well, Manifex is a recent company. We've just set it up in the last last 12 months. Um, look, look, it came about from an attempt to get private investment into, into some of the projects that were working with VCAM, where I was working at the time. What we discovered was that the financial institutions, the VC funds, what there are in Australia, just aren't interested in this in this in this space because it's not, you know, it doesn't fit their profile of what they what they what they're looking for. Even venture capital. Venture capital, yeah. They, they've you know they've got their profile in terms of the types of businesses that they're looking for, and when you're dealing with advanced manufacturing and new materials, uh, it, it 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 tends not to fit into that profile. What we did find was that the the, the people who are interested in this space are people who un- understand it. High net worths, it's uh, successful entrepreneurs themselves or people who, who have been in business and they look at this as a business investment rather than a financial you know a place to park their money if you like. I suppose the VCs would only be attracted to sort of high-tech companies uh, in, in the sort of computer space and stuff like that. Yeah look IT seems to suit the, the VCs because of the you know the, the the time frames of the business model. They also have a, tend to have a fixed term fund, so they're looking for stuff they, they can get into quickly and get out of quickly as well, so within the within the window. When you're dealing with the sorts of businesses that we deal with, the, the time frames are unique for each for each business, and therefore an evergreen fund structure suits that far, far better. We can draw down the money as as we need it. We can take on additional investment, um, you know, as particularly as we demonstrate success. And, and therefore keep providing the funds that are needed to get the businesses to the point where they succeed and we can make the exit when we want to make the exit. What kind of advanced manufacturing companies have you invested in? Look, we've just got two in the portfolio at the moment and we're looking at a third. Uh, the first two we've got, one is a, has a process using advanced materials, including short, short nanofibers, for reproducing stem cells for use in, in therapeutics. The business itself is a biotech. The, te- the technology it's based on is advanced materials. Right, right. And the second? The second company is a green chemical company. So it takes waste cellulose, it could be straw, old old newspapers, sawdust, and it, and it turns it into quite high value chemicals that can be used in the in the in the pharmaceutical or, or the or the fine chemical industry around around the world. And what stage are these companies? Look, the early stage, the they're pre-revenue, um, you know, but you know they're at the stage that they've gone through the the proof of the proof of concept. They've got a you know a validated business model. They've got customers that are certainly interested and in, and and doing and doing doing trials. So it's it's a good stage for us to be involved because it's a period now of rapid growth in, in, in getting to a qualified business and you know and establishing revenues. And and uh, so how do you find these companies? Look, these ones have been found through the relationship with, with VCAM. As, as I was saying, VCAM has been involved in helping companies and, and project teams in commercialising te- te- technology, and they get to the point that they need private investment so they can actually build build the business. You know, I'm, I'm based here in, in VCAM's offices, so I've got my eyes on the, the next opportunities coming, coming through, and certainly our third investment will come out of this as well. But it's also involved in keeping close to the 
universities and research inst- institutions with it. How do you see the level of innovation in Australia, say, compared with Europe or the US or even China? You know, it's been said multiple times, and, you know, and, you know I'm, I'm certainly not alone in saying this, but, you know, we've got a very good science base here. There's, uh, this country certainly punches above its weight when, when, it, when it comes to science and scientific developments. What we don't do enough of is commercialise it, and too much of the stuff either just, just just gets lost in the labs or it wanders off overseas. Yeah, or uh, the CSI scientist uh, takes off to America because there's no funding left. Yes, exactly right. I mean, there there are you know a lot more sophisticated investors in the you know in the larger economies, so it can be an easier place to find the money. The the investors who come into these companies are they uh, are they just sort of sitting back and parking their money there, or are they taking an active role in it? No, look, a, a key thing about about Manifex is the type of investors that we have that are that are interested in this space. They're not the sort of guys who who are, who are looking for a different type of bank account. These are people who want to bring their money and their expertise to Manifex. They all sit on the board, so they they are actively involved in the in the in the key decision making. It's just the day to day management that, that that they leave to me. So they sit on the boards of the companies. No, I sit on the boards of the company. You sit on the boards of the company. And the investors sit on, on my, my board. So there's, there's a, a good degree of communication. How does the business model work from your point of view? If somebody comes, you, you would sit there on, the, on their board and you have the investors who would be interested. Do they take a piece of the enterprise or they, is it merely angel financing at this point? No, the, the, they have shares in Manifex. That, that's, their, that's their equity. And Manifex owns the shares in the company. So you'd take a, a a piece of the innovative company. Absolutely, yes. Normally, that's what fifty or no. We've we've got minority positions in the two the two companies that we've got now. You know, we we certainly don't need to have a majority position. Things coming forward. You know, we, we'd like to have a reasonable stake you know, to make it worth our while. And uh, and I assume that once the companies get to the revenue stage, you get a slice of that as well. We're certainly looking for an opportunity to exit, yes. It could either be through a trade, a trade sale or if the company goes to a listing, then you know, we, would, we would end up with the shares on the listed entity and we could sell them at our, at our leisure, really. So there's, no, there's obviously an element of risk, but it, which you would manage if sitting on their board. But do you see difficulty in, in getting investors to, to take this level of risk at the moment, given the tightness in money? Yes, it, it, it is always a challenge. For sure, particularly finding uh, investors among the local investors. The hardest is always getting the first couple. We've we've got we've got there, but you know that that you know that certainly gets other people interested. And the first thing that potential new investors w- want to do is meet the other guys that are already involved. So, what's the process there of getting the investors on board? What's what sort of process do you have to go through? Look, it's networking. You, you know, there are advisors who will make introductions, but you know, it it comes down to this type of thing. It comes down to meeting. Getting a good feeling for them to get a good feeling about me and the other people that are involved, you know where they get that, which is usually the case. I've got to say, it, you know, then, then they're certainly interested in taking it further. And they have to actually go out and meet the meet the people in the company and yes, talk to them, uh, yes. go through their financials and all of that sort of stuff. Oh yes, you know, the, the, there's a level of due diligence that that, that any intelligent investor does. Um, I've got to say, it hasn't been too too over the top so far. How deep does Australia's advanced manufacturing sector run compared compared to other places? There are certainly you know some good pockets of expertise that we've got. One of the things that Australia always deals with is you know the, is the distance. It can't 
you can't look and say that, that we have all the skills in any particular industry here because in every industry, every market, would, we are part of a global economy. So things like carbon fibre, which VCAM is heavily involved in, you know, they have a piece now in the global technology domain of the carbon fiber industry but they have to be networked in with the rest of them so yeah yes we we can we can access opportunities here but we're accessing opportunities here that are already looking at do, do you see australia having any particular opportunity in advanced manufacturing any particular area look that that's a difficult question to answer it's really where you know where the people have have expertise passion and the connections you know where where we tend to do well is is where we can mix mix different fields so Rather than knowing everything there is to know about one particular te- technology, is where a particular te- te- technology can be joined with with another te- technology, like mixing medical te- technology with advanced materials, with with uh, nanofibers, example, and that's and that that's where we can get really great innovative breakthroughs, such as inside a matrix. So, given given the uh, lack of initiative in terms of commercialisation of science, do you have to go out and persuade them that it's a commercial idea, or do you do you actually go into the university and find these guys and say that's terrific? Why don't you make a company? Yes and no. I mean, that's you know certainly it's probably more the other way. Is the scientists believe that they've got something that's that's fantastic, and the world should pay them. You know, a whole lot of money for it, and really, what the persuasion is then is convincing them that it's a great idea. But what's the great business? And you have to make that transition to say, well, what what actually is the business, and what does the business have, and what else does the business need? You know, to, to generate the value. And that's where you would come in with your investors that the scientist would be perhaps not a commercial person, yes, but he understands what he got. Yeah, certainly finding you know, finding the right partners, the right the right complementary skills for them is you know is, is part of what we do for sure. Ian Ralph, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Well, startups need money, and it hasn't been easy for a lot of them to get. No, and it's interesting that uh, his company is set up specifically for that purpose. More strength to his arm. Absolutely right, because one thing this country needs is innovation and enterprise. That's right, and we need outfits like Manifex to support them, which pretty much what the run-of-the-mill stuff in Silicon Valley. We need that sort of stuff here. So now, uh, Chris Caton and uh, his view of what's going on in the tax area. Chris Caton, what's your assessment of the budget? Well, I guess the first thing you could say is we've come a long way in a year. Last year, of course, we were told that um, we faced a debt and deficit disaster and the coalition produced a budget last year's that it, that it said was um, tough but fair. The electorate very quickly reached the decision that it wasn't fair. What they perhaps didn't notice is that um, certainly for the first few years it wasn't tough either. The only fiscal if, – if you really had a fiscal emergency, you would have had to engage in – fairly draconian fiscal tightening, but there was none in that in the first few years, but except for the surcharge on higher income people, the indexation of the fuel excise tax, which was trivial, and the shameful cut to foreign aid. Now, they took a, a shellacking about this budget, of course. So a year down the track, they've uh, switched their view, if you like, of the fiscal background entirely. And we have what's pretty much, you know, your, your standard kind of pump priming pre-election budget in many ways. Um, Now, relative to last year, the uh, prospective deficit has increased. It's increased by about 56 billion in the first four, in the common four years of this year's budget and last year's to um, 
to see wh- why the deficit has uh, has increased. It's almost all on the um, on the revenue side. We've lost fifty two billion dollars worth of revenue. Now, now I don't remember any tax cuts in the past year, and I'm sure you don't either. Uh, so when you drill into the um, into that, you see that um, twenty billion of that revenue has been lost simply because the iron ore price has um, has fallen as much as it has, and and commodity prices are all over this budget. They're, they're, they're what's responsible for the bigger deficit. They're what's responsible for the increased share of spending relative to GDP relative to a year ago. Uh, in the in the in the year that's almost finished, spending to GDP is at twenty five point nine percent. It's been higher just seven times in the past 44 years, but pushed up because nominal GDP growth has been so low because of commodity prices and also because of low nominal wage growth. So, you know, you, you might get the impression when you first look at this budget that every year we promise a surplus five years from now and we never get any closer. But there are specific reasons this year. This year. Now, on, on budget night, incidentally, private sector economists don't get to go to lock up. So I don't find out anything about the budget until 7.30 like everybody else. At nine o'clock, somebody sticks a camera in front of you and says, what do you think? And of course, you've had very little time to assess everything. But on the night, I said that it was difficult to find too much bad to say about this budget, but also difficult to find too much good. Um, but, but in retrospect, um, that was a hasty judgment. The worst thing about this budget is no commitment to um, an increase in infrastructure spending. The best thing is the small business initiative. And, and, and that's the best thing because the reason why economic growth in Australia has been so low for so long is we're trying to replace... Uh, mining capex um, and commodity prices as a source of growth and we've had a bit of success stimulating residential construction and consumer spending but the missing guest at the growth party has been non-mining capital spending that uh, relative to GDP that's at its lowest level since the recession in the early 90s so um, the small business initiative if it works should at least um, stimulate that part of the economy and it's a big part of the economy so um, hopefully we'll get some more non-mining capex out of this as I said this is clearly directed at a problem the Australian economy does have so I'd give you know at the end of the day I guess I'd give this um, uh, I would have given last year's budget maybe a C minus. This year's budget maybe a B plus. Will there be sufficient uptake in the small business sector to create sufficient non-mining capex? Well, it's interesting. There's obviously a good deal of misunderstanding um, out there. People think you know they'll get a twenty thousand dollar check in the mail if they if they um, they buy something. Uh, there will be some rotting of this. There is no question. But there was a poll last week where of the adults they surveyed, 22% of them said that, uh, yeah, they'd be looking at this with the hope of using it. Now, that massively overstates um, the actual number of small businesses there are in Australia. But this has obviously aroused a good deal of interest. Nobody, nobody knows what the take-up will be. Joe Hockey has said, look, if more people take it up, then we're budgeting, budgeting for, that's actually good. We'll have a bigger surplus, it's, sorry, bigger deficit, it's true, but we'll also uh, get more economic growth. At the same time, uh, we're not looking for a... The, the government's projections are we're, we're going to hit a surplus in 2019-20. Uh, what's your assessment about it? Uh, do you think we're on track for that? We are on track for that. That will mean that we've run 11 years of deficits. That should never have happened, uh, but... Um, but there's not much we can do about that now. To get back 
to aim to get back to surplus quicker than that would do more harm to the economy than it would than it would do good. So um, I think we've become a bit cynical about this, um, mainly because, as I said, we've got this view now that uh, the surplus is already five years away, um, and every year it gets revised to a bigger number. What, what we've forgotten is that until 2008, the, exactly the opposite thing was happening. Until 2008, every year, the surplus was bigger than we thought it was going to be. What's the difference between now and 2008? Answer, commodity prices are falling, then they were rising. The budget bottom line, very sensitive to commodity prices. Do you see commodity prices picking up at all? Well, that's a, um, that's a difficult question. It's a bit outside my area of expertise. The um, uh, this budget has been drawn up um, on the assumption that of an iron ore price of around $48 a tonne, I believe. It is above that now, uh, but uh, whether or not it stays above that, um, there are experts in this field that think it's it's falling to the low 40s, for example. There are others that um, you know look at the oil price and say, well, that seems to have turned, and commodity prices do tend to cycle together. Um, so I suppose, I suppose it's it's entirely possible that the iron ore price could be higher than assumed, could be lower. But um, I, I'm like anybody else in this field, it's guesswork. Chris, consumer confidence would have an effect on this also, particularly on small business, wouldn't it? And it does appear to be at something like an all-time low. Well, yes, but um, but again, stark contrast to last year. Um, last year, I think consumer sentiment fell for six months in a row. Certainly, in trend terms, it did that. Um, you know, beginning before the budget, but clearly hit by the budget. Um, this year, we have one post-budget reading on consumer sentiment, and it lifted by about six percent. So it's obvious that um, the initial public reaction to this budget is a lot um, is a lot better than last year. You're quite correct. Depending on the, the take-up, if you like, of the small business measures uh, will depend on sentiment. And a lot of that sentiment would also be driven by uh, interest rates falling to low levels and, and, for that matter, petrol prices. Correct. And, of course, uh, you know, the, well, the interest rate, you know, the lowest in living memory. Uh, I'm sure the Reserve Bank... The Reserve Bank will be a reluctant cutter from now on, so this may be as low as it gets. And I think we also need to acknowledge that some people um, don't like interest rate cuts because it takes income away from them. So, uh, you know, I think I think you assume the interest rate is going to stay somewhere close to where it is now. Do you see them rising up any time, uh, like next year or anything like that? To me, to me, the, the two things that will determine what happens next with the interest rates, uh, well, the three things really. Number one, the overall tenor of growth in Australia. Number two what happens to the unemployment rate. And my very simple rule of thumb on this is, until it's clear the unemployment rate's peaked, there's always the chance of a, um, of a further rate cut. Once it's clear that the unemployment rate has peaked, we will be raising rates. But I think that's a 2016 story. The other thing, uh, of course, that will be on the Reserve Bank's mind is they've clearly lit a bit, the, the prolonged period of low interest rates has clearly lit something of a fire in investor behaviour in residential property, particularly in Sydney and to a lesser extent in Melbourne. And let's just put it this way, the Reserve Bank would be more likely to cut rates again if it saw um, that, that um, the heat, if you like, in the investor property market, if it saw that diminishing. Chris Caton, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. So what do you think, Leon? Well, yes, his view of the budget was really interesting. Yeah, it was. It was. And uh, it's pretty interesting still, the way That's things right. are going. That's pretty much how we were saying. We were saying, you know, let's see how it works out. But anyway, that's good. So, okay, the news.
The negotiations with Greece are in their end game, and Athens said it won't be able to repay the IMF on schedule next month. That's a Greek government minister, Nikos Voutsis. He was speaking to television station Mega TV, and he said the instalment to the IMF won't be paid. The instalments for the IMF in June are 1.6 billion euros. The money will not be given. There isn't any to be given. This is a known fact. And he added, however, that the negotiations between Athens and its creditors are taking place on the basis of cautious optimism. There'll be a strong agreement. Now, Greece actually faces fought debt repayments to the IMF from June the 5th. And Athens is going to struggle to meet all of them without using any bailout funds due to it that are being blocked by its international creditors. And a failure to honour the repayments could result in default, raising the spectre of a possible exit from the euro. The G7 is meeting over the next two days. The US is expected to put pressure on the G7, which will be meeting today in Dresden, Germany, to get up some sort of deal with Greece. But in the end, it's going to be pretty futile because, OK, you'll extend more credit to Greece to cover this one. What about the next three? What about those? beyond that and increasingly I think the donor nations Germany in particular are going to be playing hardball. Well the Americans are very concerned about the geopolitical risks because if Greece for some reason were to turn to Russia and Moscow would get involved more they would get too much influence inside NATO and inside the EU. Well yes indeed and Mr Putin is clearly ambitious in that area. So that's what's driving America. Anyway uh, to boost Consumer demand in a flagging economy, China has slashed import taxes on consumer goods by more than a whopping 50%. China's Ministry of Finance said it would cut duties on imported goods including suits, fur garments and shoes beginning on June the 1st. Now tariffs for Western style clothing is going to be chopped 7 to 10% from 14 to 23%. Taxes on ankle high boots and sports shoes will be halved to 12%. Import tariffs on skincare products will fall from 5% to 2%. And all of this is aimed at addressing the way Chinese consumers who are deterred by high tariffs are now shopping abroad or doing it through agents. The reality is Chinese consumer pay around 20% more for luxury goods than their counterparts in Europe. And, of course, a lot of them are travelling. Uh, the middle class is very touristical, and uh, they buy up when they get to countries like Australia and uh, and to countries in Europe. Or even online. Now, uh, the, the, But the issue is retail sales growth in China has been falling, and China's economy grew only 7% year over year in the first quarter. That's the worst performance in six years. So they've got to do something. Well, indeed, yeah. And this, of course, is an opportunity for uh, our countries to export into China. China. Now, the US Senate's move to fast-track legislation that could speed up the creation of a landmark Pacific trade deal has injected fresh momentum into talks with negotiators saying they're in the final stages of discussions after more than five years of wrangling. Last week, the US Senate passed so-called fast-track legislation, which would help conclude the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal with Japan and 10 other countries, including Australia. Yep, and very interesting that will be, I think, down the track. I think so. Now, that is going to be quite fascinating to watch. Now, in Australia, the big story during the week was the speculation that foreign buyers are now running the ruler over Australian iron ore producers, and Andrew Forrest Fortescue Metals Group has refused to comment on whether it's a primary target. And the market chatter follows a report last weekend by veteran journalist Laurie Oakes in News Corporation Papers. The Foreign Investment Review Board had received several applications that could affect mining companies. Yeah, Twi- Twiggy says that he's not going to sell them. Well, yeah, but the issue is that Fortescue says it's not aware of applications, but at the same time, Bowsteel and Citic are interested in doing a deal with them and where they will take some equity and it will mean Andrew Forrest selling down. 
Absolutely. But, I mean, he's got close links with both those Chinese companies and has for some time. That's right. Top Chinese official, in quoted in the papers today, said Fortescue will have to get backing from the Chinese. And Li Xinjiang, the secretary of the China Iron and Steel Association, which represents China's biggest state-owned steel mills, told Fairfax Media that Fortescue had no choice. And he said, Fortescue is in a tough situation with, li- with the low iron ore price. In my view, they have to find an equity partner, and China is really the only logical place for Fortescue. And it's a case that they have to find a partner, otherwise they'll find themselves in a difficult situation with the bank if the iron ore price stays at $60 a tonne. And it may not because you've already got Gina Reinhardt about to open the production at Roy Hill. It's it's a big problem. Yeah. Now, small business confidence has small fallen to a record low this quarter with the May Westpac Melbourne Institute Small Business Index recording a decrease of 12.7%. And now it's at an all-time low of 108.2 points. That's down from 124 points in February. Two in five small businesses are concerned about macroeconomic conditions weighing down on business performance. And this is after the government's done that rather strange $20,000 handout. You know, the confidence on that and the usefulness and that seems to be declining. Well, consumer goodwill generated by the coalition's budget has faded slightly. According to the latest uh, ANZ Roy Morgan sentiment index, it slipped after last week's strong, strong showing. That dropped 1% to 113.5 points in the week ending May 24. And that's stolen back some of the previous week's post-budget surge of 3.6%. The Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index, which indicates a likely pace of economic activity three to nine months in the future, lifted from minus 0.02% in March to a positive 0.43%. But that's very, very small. It suggests that strength of growth is weak and could deteriorate in the face of a hostile Senate and a Conservative Reserve Bank board. Now, construction work done in Australia has declined at a faster pace in the March quarter, outstripping analyst expectations. You know, you're not building enough roads and pipelines well, with the right. end of the mining investment boom. Yeah. And data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed total construction work for the three months to March slipped 2.4% to $48.4 billion. A big chunk of that, of course, was the halting of construction in the mining area. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's particularly pronounced in Queensland and Western Australia, I might add. Now, the federal government's uh, federal budget's focus on small business might have actually come just in time because a new survey shows the sector's holding growing concern about the state of the Australian economy. The Census Business Index for the March quarter, which gauges confidence levels of small and medium businesses, found that 49% of businesses survey felt confident compared to 29% which felt concerned. But that's unchanged from the previous quarter. But it showed the perceptions of the Australian economy economy were at the most dire for any time over the past year. Only 12% of businesses surveyed believed the economy was growing, which saw the net balance of perceptions on growth drop a seat 14 points to minus 23. That's down from minus 9 in the previous quarter. Now that said, this survey was taken before this month's federal budget, which included a 1.5% reduction in the company tax rate for small businesses and accelerated asset write-offs. So the question is whether this will bright, whether the budget will brighten the outlook of SMEs on the broader economy. And one has to doubt that. Yeah, I really don't know. Now, Moody's says growing imbalances in the housing markets are posing a long-term challenge for banks because statistics released by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority show the value of residential loans by all banks to households at the end of the March quarter, $1.3 trillion, was up 9% on levels a year ago. And loans to investors of $450 billion accounted for 35% of all residential loans and were up 2.6% over the quarter. Yeah, and the RBA is very worried about what's going on in the housing area. That's right, that's right. So they're lending it to people. And some interesting news with uh, mergers and takeovers during the week, Gary. Labour high and recruitment services firm Skill Group 
is entering further talks with Program Maintenance Services about the two brands merging. Now, the boards had agreed there's merit in progressing the discussions after Program Indicators prepared to improve the terms upon which a merger may proceed. Now, in January, Skill rejected a merger proposal from Program, saying it wouldn't alter the group's potential or market position and it undervalued the group, but it left the door open. So Program had proposed a so-called merger of equal that offered 0.5032 of its shares plus 0.25 cents cash for every skill share. And at the time, the bid valued skilled at $1.38 a share. Skill board said the merger was not compelling, but uh, it's kept the door open, so they're talking. Now, the other interesting piece of news is that Perth-based miner independence group will swallow Mark Greasy's serious resources to create a new $2.8 billion miner with the acquisitive, and the acquisitive Evolution Mining has emerged as the nation's second biggest gold miner after snapping up the Cow Gold Mine in New South Wales for $550 million. Now, both Independence Chief Executive Peter Bradford and Evolution's Jake Klein said the deals reflect the unique conditions in the resources sector because the majors that have typically dominated merger and acquisition activity have moved away from Australia. And that's allowed Independence to snap up Sirius and its world-class Nova Nickel discovery in Western Australia without competition from larger foreign rivals. And Evolution picked up Cow from Barrick Gold which is uh, Barrick Gold's uh, one of the world's biggest gold miners, and it's based in Canada, and it's retreated from Australia. And the acquisition of Sirius by Independence, which owns a 40% stake in the Tropicana gold mine, as well as 100% of the Long Nickel and Jaguar Copper Zinc mines, that's the biggest deal in Australia's resources sector so far this year. Very good, yeah. And they don't have the problems that uh, iron ore does. And the final bit of news is, you know, if you're an investor... In the share market, it's not good news. Um, Investment bank Credit Suisse is forecasting a flat 12 months for Australian stocks as the resources sector and the bid for banks weigh on the market. And Credit Suisse has downgraded its 12-month target for the S&P ASX 200 from 6,400 points to 5,840. That's just 2% above its current levels. And the downgrade comes after the benchmark index came close to touching the 6,000-point barrier several times between February and April, but it retreated. And the change in Credit Suisse views has been attributed to weaker-than-expected earnings outlook for the big banks and the resources companies, combined with a relatively strong Australian dollar. And they're saying the resources sector has performed even more poorly than they'd forecast earlier this year. Recent profit results for the banks suggest earnings growth are going to be tough to come by. Yep, and the other little thing, a dig in the side, is Australia's just been passed by New Zealand in the world uh, competitiveness stakes oh dear oh dear oh dear (laughs) we've dropped down two places and new zealand's come up one well that's it for this week gary good leon and uh and next week we're going to have a great interview with bulletproof ceo anthony woodward and it's going to be all about the cloud so tune in for that in the meantime you can catch us on twitter at talking biz or on facebook in the meantime stay safe and we'll talk to you next week